Do you put planet over profit? Every organization answers this question, mostly implicitly in day-to-day -day decisions. It's the job of the leadership team to set priorities when it comes to planet and profit ambitions. In this episode, a leader of a purpose-driven startup founded by a stock-listed company shares his experience of balancing planet and profit ambitions. My name is Patrick Hübscher and this is Circularity FM, the podcast about understanding, building and managing circular business models. Today's guest is a passionate photographer. He did research on corporate spin-offs, worked at Bang and Olufsen and in his PhD thesis he reflected on the innovation process there. He was active as a circularity consultant and led circularity projects at AB InBev. One of these projects ultimately turned into Evergreen Ingredients, a new circular venture where he's a global director. Welcome, Giacomo. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. Great to be here. When was the last time you had a protein bar and a beer at the same time? At the same time, I don't remember ever having it. <laughs> it's, it's a great question. But soon I might be able to actually have a, a protein burger bun with a beer in Italy with, with the product of ours. So not really what you asked, but close enough, hopefully. <laughs> Sounds good. And uh, how do you at Evergreen bring beer and proteins together? The story is the other way around, how they were together to start with. Mm -hmm. So Evergreen is a sustainable ingredients company that is backed by uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev, or in short, AB InBev, which is the largest beer company in the world. The origin point is a grain of barley. Barley is what brewers use to get the starch content that then gets solubilized and, and, and fermented into, into what becomes delicious beer. However, brewers only use a part of that barley grain to actually make the beer. The rest, which is the solid part or uh, just full of uh, proteins and dietary fibers, has no inherent value for the brewers. It needs to be removed from the brewery. But we, as Evergreen, we save that and we uh, transform that raw material that would be otherwise considered as waste but the brewers into delicious ingredients. And with those that are full of, as you were saying, plant-based proteins, as well as dietary fibers, we then create either a protein bar or high fiber pasta or a protein milk, a plant-based milk and, and so forth. So that's what Evergreen is, uh, is doing. Do I get it right that it's uh, more or less a B2B company because you're not doing the protein bars yourself, you sell the ingredients uh, to other companies? Correct. Yes, even though it was a little bit of a journey to get there, and maybe we can get into that later. At the beginning, we thought that we could launch our beverage full of these ingredients, but we quickly realized that for everybody to win, the planet and uh, and the customers included uh, we had to move and pivot to being a b2b company because as evergreen vertically integrated into abimbev we have access to 1.4 million tons of these saved grains and i guess that <laughs> we couldn't fully understand how we on our own we could create a beverage that would would leverage all of this uh, nutrition and uh, and bring it to market so 
We're now a B2B company that creates these delicious ingredients and we work across the board uh, uh, to, to provide them. Yeah, yeah cool. You, you mentioned the planet and also AB InBev. I mean, basically I get that you're 100% subsidiary of AB and Ban, uh, InBev and that itself is a like a 100% stock listed company, one of the largest brewing companies worldwide. I assume you have some kind of financial goals, but are there also some specific environmental expectations from AB InBev towards Evergreen? If I can share with you a personal story there, I, I joined AB InBev about four years ago. At that point, Evergreen did not exist yet. We were just working on this project internally as a sustainable innovation project. The one thing that I was extremely surprised, but especially so pleased, that was how the belief that sustainability was a better business was already anchored in the company. So AB InBev, uh, since, uh, I mean, for a long time, has put some quite aggressive sustainability goals uh, for them to achieve to make a better business. So sustainability is the better business. So there was very little compromise. Actually, there was more of a strong belief that if we explored even deeper what we could do from a sustainability perspective, this would lead to better business. Evergreen was the result of that. From the very beginning, of course, there is also an appreciation of the value gain that could come from uh, looking at the byproduct of the beer production. Because I said before, it's a 1.4 million tons of something that is sold at a very minimal price to cattle farms or even discarded in the worst places. So there is a potential, an economic potential there to make a great business out of that. And at the same time, building it in the most sustainable way, or at least based on a strong, sustainable purpose that, that goes together. Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, purpose, and I find it always interesting how to balance these, let's say, ambitions and goals, yeah? be it sustainable, be it economic. I mean, there are a couple of frameworks out there to start with why a book behind behind you in the bookshelf yeah it's about purpose it's about vision it's about mission i see some of them on your website also how do you bring those into relation and you have a shareholder that is sustainably driven but also of course will keep you financially accountable where in your strategy set do you put environmental ambitions and where in the strategy set do you put financial ambitions i would think that the prioritization of this aspect, the purpose, which for us is defined as, you know, to, to realize the potential in everything or the mission, for example, which is, you know, creating these incredible ingredients to nourish the world through the power of circularity and the shareholder value. They are ever present, but they serve different purposes also in time. So I think there is a time perspective to it. Mm-hmm and the validation one as well. What I would call very technically the what the fuck moment where everything starts mm -hmm. was actually a combination of the two. So at some point, seven years ago, a couple of people within ABI, they had this spark, this, this, this trigger that said, wait a second, why are we only using as a brewery 60, 70% of the barley that we move around the, uh, the globe. Why are we sending, you know, this 30, 40% of remaining saved grains full of water with trucks 
to cattle feed. So basically, why are we moving water around for no real sustainable nor nor, nor financial gain whatsoever? Mm-hmm. So that was like, what the hell? Why didn't we ever really, really look into this? This part came because it was both an inspiring and sustainable purpose that could be created out of this mm-hmm. that at the same time provided the potential for an economic gain. So the combination of the two was how we as a company were able to dedicate also resources to such a project internally to explore, to understand which form does this idea need to take to make sense. Mm-hmm. And we went back and forth and we had an initial trigger in which as we were saying before, shareholder value and purpose and mission were, I would say, at, at, at an equal level uh, right. of importance. Then uh, I would say that the purpose one, that then you have a break, kind of a, a period of development, of exploration, mm-hmm. where it is the purpose that is driving you. You want to know, how can I make this work? How can I shape this into a real business? And we've done so via a, uh, a framework that internally we call DVF, that stands for desirability, viability, and feasibility. So market desirability, financial viability, and technical feasibility. And 90% of our attention was given to the market desirability. <laughs> so is there somebody out there that would be interested in using some sustainable and nutritious ingredients from spent grains. And that was always the focus. Then came technical feasibility in which we figured out, okay, can we do this? Can we do this at scale? And then eventually came the financial viability. Like, Can we actually build a business model around this? Can we make it be financially sustainable also so that it can grow on its own? And at that point, then we started forecasting as best as we could because it's always an art uh, what kind of shareholder value this could create you know how big could this get based on our market validation and technical validation so because we were part and we still are part of a, a major company we had to prove that there is a certain return on investment and this return on investment uh, is absolutely financial of course but it, it also is uh, from a brand equity perspective, and it also also from a, a brand responsibility perspective. So once you know that you have this potential, you need to realize it because otherwise you're not staying true to your uh, sustainable values that mm-hmm. actually are those that make you believe this is the better business. And at the end of the day, so even though we have these periods of exploration with a shareholder value creation check <laughs> that allows us to go further and further, they need to be aligned and they can be aligned. And and this is probably one of my key beliefs overall, uh, which were, we were discussing even before, which is sustainability does not necessarily need at the expense of shareholder value or the other way around. Right. So there is a way, and we think we really found that, in which... We're realizing the sustainable potential of these saved grains of this uh, raw material that was not yet valorized for what it could do in a way that is going to bring uh, some business benefits. And this is extremely important because if it wasn't the case, we would have no arguments 
to convert or try to convert this 1.4 million tons of spam cranes. So because they can go hand in hand, this is propelling us. This is making us uh, a force to realize the biggest impact. We can go to scale because we make sense across the board. We're not just a nice exploration that is going to be a niche solution with a limited sustainable benefits or ecological benefit. No, we are something that if we convert 1.4 millions of grains, million tons of grains, we're going to have gained sustainable and financial benefits all across the board. Right. And that is a strong force behind yeah. us. Would it be correct to say that the financial requirements are basically an, a necessary but not itself like a sufficient condition for, for such a business? So you, you need to meet them as a baseline, but that itself, at least for you, wasn't the only sufficient condition there. From the very beginning, like it's about the purpose, it's about the sustainability as a purpose, while at the same time the financial capabilities enable you to scale such a solution. Yeah, I agree to that. And I think it's very well put. Also because sustainable innovation, I would even say it's it's harder than regular innovation <laughs> because you need to, you know, fit also your values in, in purpose and mission. So the ability to find purpose in what we do and going through the painful process of what is a regular innovation journey was absolutely critical for two reasons. Well, first of all, there is a market demand for real sustainable innovation right now. Mm-hmm. So even though we're a B2B business, it is also true that the end consumer is finally putting their eyes and their wallets where their mouth is, meaning they are finally buying products that are really more sustainable rather than, than the, and, and this is becoming a real differentiation point on shelf with the risk of a lot of greenwashing, but still. So there was always this element of, if we stay true to what we are and what we believe, mm-hmm. then the end consumer is going to appreciate that and is going to drive you know, demand. And the second point, which I think is even more important for us, is internal. Being bound by a shared belief in our purpose made us an extremely powerful team. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you don't, like how many innovation got out that weren't carried by a team bound by a common purpose? Yeah. It just doesn't work. You're not going to do it. You're yeah. not going to put yourself in that situation. If you want to be a regular employee, it's awesome. It's fine. But if you want to go through an innovation journey that it's going to take years and years to eventually get there, yeah. you need something that you feel inspired when you wake up in the morning. And I know it sounds cheesy. But at the end of the day, it's true. Like you need to have that driving force, this inherent or intrinsic force to get you going and to get the team going around yeah. something you believe. Because long story short, an innovation is not going to be one, like, a, you know, the second day that you have the idea is going to be successful. No, it's <laughs> going to be failure after failure after failure after failure. Yeah. So what do you have to go in for you? 
it's the strong belief and the shared belief in in the same purpose. Is this also like along the lines uh, what you said about uh, customer centricity when when we met, where you say every I think every new hire has to go through a training about user centricity or or user focus because I guess like innovation is at the end also solving customer problems where customers at that point are not really sure that they have that kind of a problem. Yeah, so so that makes it a bit a bit harder. You do have a dedicated training or onboarding for for people, right? Yes, that's correct. So the here maybe we were we were lucky to a degree that uh, ABMBAV itself, uh, from an innovation perspective, had this uh, uh, established this uh, this framework to guide new projects from idea to potential scale. And this, it is this desirability, viability, and feasibility framework. Mm -hmm. And there is no passing a milestone or a gate or an approval without proving desirability. Okay. And proving desirability is, it's very difficult always because uh, it oftentimes goes against the, some of the practices that we're used to do at the corporate level. Usually you enlist a six-figure marketing agency that is meant to give you a report or a seven-figure consulting agency that is meant to give you an even bigger report. <laughs> and then that's going to be your Bible. But at the end of the day, proving desirability means not only talking about the end consumers, but being very close to the end consumer. Mm -hmm. So I remember when I started we had this summer accelerator project in which the, some of the new hires were coming from all over the world to learn about design thinking, to learn about agile methodologies, to learn about lean canvas and, and the likes. Uh, and I had two months time to come up with, uh, you know, the DVF framework completed mm -hmm. and some prototypes. And the first thing you do in the first week is you create some awfully looking cheap prototype and go out in the streets of New York asking people, what do you think of that? Yeah. And having those 30 conversations in, in, in a square in New York has such a strong power that becomes then your Bible. Yeah. Those verbatims, those quotes from these people become your Bible and no marketing report is going to be able to confute that. And we've tried to implement this at, uh, at scale as, as Evergreen grows. So we are always staying true to our DVF framework. Mm -hmm. We have resources for people to learn about design thinking, to learn about how do we validate desirability. It's absolutely critical because as a large organization or maybe as a um, bias of a large organization, what we would risk is that We would prove the technical feasibility that we can do it at scale. We would likely also be able to build a business case that makes sense. So oftentimes you can make that up. It's going to be okay. And then we're going to be demanding funds to go to scale without having ever talked to a real consumer yeah. or a customer. Yeah. And that is a tremendous risk for yeah. a new business, especially a sustainable one. Yeah. that oftentimes believes that the purpose is only to be sustainable. Yeah. And the risk is that if you're only sustainable, but you're not solving anybody's problem, well, you're meant to be a nice project that is going to die out in one or two years. And that's 
such a wasted opportunity. Yeah. Well, why do you think that the risk of dying out there is high? You know, we, we need to work from within the system if we want to achieve real mm -hmm. impact. And this means uh, working with end consumers and consumers, they, they want to buy new products. They want to buy new solutions and end consumers are changing their mindset and they are demanding more, more innovative products and, and also more sustainable products. But at the end of the day, if uh, I went out with the first prototype that we had that was very sustainable, mm -hmm. which was a um, smoothie made out of uh, these spent grains. The reality is that that product was mostly sustainable, but not really a good product. So we weren't really solving anybody's problem. Nobody was screaming for this uh, new spent grain smoothie. Mm -hmm. And even when we tried to push that, Because we weren't clear about what we were solving, it was a combination of claims around nutrition and sustainability and circularity. And we kind of forgot also the taste element. We forgot the texture element. Uh, so it was not a good product, at least not good enough to live on its own by being only sustainable. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the key pivot moments. And we said, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. This was also the moment where we realized, okay, maybe we need to become a B2B company right, yeah. because there are others out there that are better yeah. at making products and we can better solve the end consumer's demands, which are more sustainable products, yes, but also extremely tasty mm -hmm. and pleasant products because they're not willing to, to compromise that much. So if you're only sustainable, the risk is that, first of all, you're not going to create a product that is as good or better mm -hmm. than what's in the market. Mm -hmm. So you're going to force the end consumer to compromise. And by doing so, you're limiting the sustainable benefits that your solution could bring. Mm -hmm. Because what we're trying to do now is to create something that is better, so that as equal or better than all the products in the market. And and the benefits, it's sustainable. Yeah. So we're trying to make the sustainable choice the best choice. Yeah. And that is why we like to believe that you know we're trying to do something good that is gonna that is gonna go to scale, that is gonna get traction, and we're getting the first insights of that. Sounds great. Do you have any KPIs in place uh, on the sustainable dimension? So. We are all good at uh, having all the financial KPIs in place. At some point, also the innovation KPIs. Uh, how is it with the sustainable ones? Very early on, we were also lucky to be a sister team to the formal sustainability team of ABI that was already very experienced in assessing sustainability, not from a marketing perspective, but from a... Uh, we were part of the procurement organization. <laughs> so I think this, this is telling to the fact that what it really matters was, was the, how could we assess the material flows mm -hmm. going in and out of our breweries from a sustainability perspective. Mm -hmm. So it had to be quantitatively, quantitative to a degree. It was, we were not part of a marketing team at that time or a marketing department. Mm -hmm. So we knew that we had to be able to prove how sustainable we were. So early on, we enlisted some external partners and companies to do a full fleshed out life cycle analysis of our ingredients. Mm -hmm. 
which measures the sustainability of your ingredients from a carbon emission, water use, land use, and uh, what you do. So we ourselves sometimes fell into the belief that as long as something was was circular and was upcycled, it was better. <laughs> and that was enough. <laughs> but we realized very early on that we had to be able to prove it, not only to ourselves, but also to our customers. And so we, we did this LCA, which came out to be positive in the sense that we, we proved to be the world's most sustainable source of proteins and fibers because of our upcycle nature. Mm -hmm. So the fact that a supply chain around barley, basically the barley is grown and harvested for the purpose of making beer, in, independently if evergreen exists or not, make us a, a co-product of that. And therefore, the, life, the total life cycle of our ingredients is shortened, is limited, because we are not, barley is not grown to make barley protein today. Might be in the future, so things might change in the future, but currently barley is grown to make beer. And this gave us some, uh, some advantage because we can bring barley protein and barley fiber to the market without having to create any new hectare of barley fields. Mm -hmm. That exists already. We have 1.4 million tons of that, as I said before. So we have a little bit to go through. And this became the quantitative baseline, I would say, and around which we measure ourselves, but from a KPI perspective, and maybe focusing more on the performance part of a KPI, we want to remain that yeah. and we want to ever improve. Like the goal is that we, we know we still have room for improvements. Mm -hmm. We are building our first facilities, which are already very sustainable, but we know we can do even more. Mm -hmm. like we can, you know, work with completely you know, renewable energies in, in our facilities, which for the majority already is. We just want to get to the maximum of that. We want to reduce all of the waste that comes from processing these ingredients. And by waste, I mean maybe pieces or parts of our ingredients that currently we haven't yet found a way to upcycle. Mm -hmm. So we want to upcycle and use 100% of these safe grains. So we do have from a performance perspective, some ideas in how can we maintain our claim about being the world's most sustainable, but also to improve that. And, and here we work with everybody else. Like it's not that we want to be the first because we want everybody else not to be, but it's more because we do believe that this is the best business and we can work also with other manufacturers to achieve the same goal. If feel like you're from the very start based on the LCA you did and as you mentioned like the the, the material is already there yeah? even if evergreen wouldn't exist yeah the uh, it's it's just there there is a different let's say a different pressure to improve on on that dimension maybe compared to com competitors so Do you think that there, are, in an organization, there are sometimes times where you look more into sustainable KPI or there are times where you look more into market KPI or uh, efficiency KPI so that you can also say, okay, this is something we know we're good at right now. We know we have to improve, but right now it's not top one priority. It's like um, rank three or so. 
uh, we first have to get into the market. Is this something that resonates with you? Or because, I mean, you can't do all everything at the same time. I agree. And, and it's a fine line, right? One that one need, needs to thread carefully. What I mean by that is that, as I said before, the sustainable KPI mm -hmm. was something we were able to prove. And that gave us legitimacy to exist. Yeah. We need to prove that we can exist as a business. Mm -hmm. So right now, and I come back to the, you know, the, how careful one needs to be. But right now we are taking what we have that we think that for the moment it's enough and we are bringing that to scale. And so right now it's a lot about business KPIs. Can yeah. we actually build a, a functioning business that can live on its own? Yeah. After that, we're going to be try to optimize that. So um, at this moment in time, you know, fr from a very pragmatic perspective, I mean, uh, if a scale facility needs to be designed from an engineering perspective, you cannot always keep on changing stacks and keep on changing <laughs> the processing to always be ever, ever sustainable, right? Yeah. So at some point we need to take a stand, okay, this is what we're going to create now. Yeah. And then we are going to focus on being more efficient and more sustainable with either version 1.1, if we can refurbish the first facilities or for the second facility or the third one. Yeah. So even though we are ambitious and we, we need not to forget and here, this is why I mean, we need to be careful. It's not that once you prove you're sustainable, the job is done. Uh, we need to be careful in not forgetting that we have made a conscious decision to take where we were in time and bring that to scale and then to reassess, re-question ourselves re-challenge ourselves and ask, okay, how can we do this even better? Is it like, like is sustainability a shared responsibility there or is, uh, is there a team uh, or one person doing like always the, the, the LCA updates or, or are these three people only responsible for sustainability or is everyone responsible? Uh, I'm going to start with the obvious, which is everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it goes back to the purpose, like it's like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree because uh, to join Evergreen, we and to join such a journey of mm -hmm. innovation, we need to find people that believe in what we believe. Yeah. And for some roles, this is more important than than others. It's yeah. true, but especially if you are, I might have different opinions within the company, but if you are in in a commercial position or in a uh, in a marketing position, like I find it personally very, very, very difficult trying to convince a customer of something that I don't believe myself, yeah. <laughs> right? It's impossible. Yeah. So, but there needs to be a baseline to be able to work together and to have the discussion of sometimes, you know, making compromises for sustainable choices or more sustainable choices. Like mm -hmm. we need to give up couple percentages of margins because we've selected a certain type of, you know, logistic partner versus packaging versus yeah. other things. So there is a, a purposeful filter of trying to hire new talents and new people that believe in what we do, especially when it comes around sustainability. At the same time, real sustainability is also not necessarily that easy. So recently in, in, in summer, 
a dear colleague that was one of the regional founders of, of, of Evergreen, Jackie, uh, who was the European lead for sustainability at Avinbev, joined Evergreen as mm-hmm. the head of sustainability. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that, as I was saying before, you know, we have done our LCA before. Yeah. It gave us legitimacy to exist. That was fine. We could go on a little bit on autopilot or, or yeah. live with that for a year. Yeah. But now we need to bring this to the next level. Yeah. And we needed somebody that knows the inside out of how an LCA is built or how a sustainable strategy is also implemented that goes beyond just ingredients, but that speaks to the whole company yeah. about our processes, our, our, our culture, our, you know, social engagements. Like we want to be a sustainable company beyond that LCA yeah. that cares for every barley grain, that cares for every person and every resource that goes into our, our facilities. And also somebody that is quite well versed in communicating about mm-hmm. sustainability. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest risks is also to fall into a, an obvious or superficial sustainable narrative mm-hmm. from a PR or, or even from a marketing perspective. And that is for us something that we care a lot about because oftentimes the question is, Hey, Giacomo, awesome. This is an awesome ingredient. It works well. It uh, it performs functionally great. uh, It tastes good. It's also sustainable, but how can I communicate this to my end consumer? And this is not an easy, an easy answer to give because there are all kinds of, of it depends there. So having like sustainability is a whole strategy for us. And we needed somebody that would own it and they would be fully responsible for that. Mm-hmm. And they would also keep refreshing yeah. our sense of yeah. being on a sustainable journey and to also keep us challenging, keep on challenging ourselves at the same time. Yeah. Somebody that was maybe not so in love with the initial circular proposition only, but yeah. that would that have seen many other sustainable businesses and projects that therefore can bring in some external expertise and challenges to to trigger some new projects internally on how we can be more sustainable or so forth. It's a combination of three things for you. So sustainability is uh, deeply ingrained in the um, founding story of uh, Evergreen. Uh, second, it's uh, in the hiring process. You try to make sure that everyone buys into that mission even though it might not be that relevant for the day-to-day job. So there's a common ground and you have a, let's say, organizational unit and structure or that person, which probably is just a start, uh, who on a systematic level makes sure that you constantly know where you're standing, where you can improve, where you have shortcomings and addresses that and tries to help help you. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. Sounds actually pretty smart, uh, especially what, what I just realized this was a learning uh, for me, but it uh, totally makes sense uh, to be pretty consistent there on the hiring side, because otherwise you, the risk is pretty high that you have just a few people working on it, on the sustainable aspects, and, and the others say, well... But we have this team. Yeah, they are responsible. Yeah, well, it's not my job yeah, to to be sustainable. Making that sure in the hiring process is a good step. You can or like uh, creating the prerequisites um, and shaping the culture also in that direction. Yeah. Absolutely. 
What was a major learning for you personally when it comes to bringing the economic and the ecological uh, ambition together? I think that when you when you start with a an idea of being in this line of business, not not necessarily only sustainability, but doing something that matters and, and makes the world a better place, you always have an inherent fear that maybe it's you need to believe that, but it's not like it's 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 um it's gonna remain a a small project. It's going to remain something that works only because we believe in it, but the rest of the world doesn't uh, and, and nobody can see this in the world the same way you do. Um, so there is this fear of, of being alone on a journey like that, mm -hmm. uh, of being too value oriented and not really fitting in with, uh, with how the world really works and uh, how can you create a business around something that you guys created because believed so strongly in sustainability. And for me, the major learning was that that fear was completely unfounded. And maybe it is also something of you know, time of our, like a sign of our times that uh, things are changing. I guess that we've been talking for sustainability for the last 50 years and it's, it's not a new topic, right? So, yeah. but it feels that there is a different energy in the air right now. And, you know, interestingly enough, for example, there is a, um, a major marketing uh, analysis uh, company in the food sector called Innova. And Innova every year puts out uh, the top 10 trends for food in the world. And this year, for the first time, number one was shared planet. And for me, this was a, uh, actually kind of a little bit of a surprise because Coming out of the pandemic, people have been or coming out, well, we're still in there, <laughs> but you know, in the process of the pandemic, people have been focusing on their own circles, on their own household, on, on themselves, uh, on, on making it through another month, depending on everybody's condition. And, and you might have, like, I might have believed somebody that told me, you know, the climate change agenda has been put slightly on hold mm -hmm. until we are through this. Mm -hmm. And instead, the other way around happened. It kind of bound us together to a shared sense of belonging. Like the, the pandemic kind of democratized or, or homogenized the world. Like everybody's in this together. Yeah. Same, and, and it's the same for the climate. Yeah. If if three years ago we really had to solve a consumer problem from a taste perspective from a nutritional perspective and sustainability was a nice to have. Currently, I'm happy to say that one of the key reasons why our ingredients are being used is also because they are a real quantifiable way to make a product more sustainable yeah. that goes beyond the packaging around it. It makes really the product itself more sustainable and consumers are reacting to it they're reacting with uh, with with purchases they're reacting with uh, how they behave in the supermarkets so for me this has been a refreshing surprise because for a long time and i'm just talking in up to four years ago it felt very much that we were trying to convince others yeah that uh, you know sustainability is the way to go in the food space and yes everybody likes to talk about that but few would commit, you know, to change their ingredients and consider ours because of the sustainability angle. And now it's the other way around. 
And it's just great. It, it proves that we were never alone on this journey. It was just a matter of time for everybody to, to see the world in the same world, in the same way that we do. And this is true for both end consumers as well as our customers that are now responding to the end consumers. Yeah. So from, uh, yeah, this was maybe the biggest surprise. I know it's a bit, little bit high level, but it's actually a good surprise. Maybe I hope that turned into reality and. Giacomo, I, I couldn't have a more uh, positive note at the end of our conversation. Uh, thanks for sharing your experience and your perspective. No, thanks, Patrick, for having me. This was great. Thanks a lot. This episode was about balancing planet and profit with Giacomo from Evergreen Ingredients. The next episode will be about another exciting circular business model. Until then, please don't forget, the most valuable renewable resource is your imagination. My name is Patrick Hübscher and this is Circularity FM, the podcast about understanding, building and managing circular business models.